While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. reading rainbow when you were a kid i have recollection of watching an episode of reading rainbow in a library at school and it was an episode on like illusions like Mm -hmm. optical illusions but i don't remember watching a lot of it other than that i remember the song pretty well yeah i remember the song i have i have like vague non-specific memories of reading it or not reading it, watching it. <laughs> uh, of watching, reading, watching, reading Rainbow. <laughs> That's kind of tricky. Uh, um, yeah, I don't really have, I don't know if I just was not watching the right kids TV. I don't know. I, I think I watched, it was just, it was so. Was it of a time that we missed? It was so long ago that I think maybe we don't remember it as much. I guess. But I think we can agree that it's like a force for good in the world, right? Yeah, I think so. Did you know that they were making new episodes of it up until 2006? I s- really? Yeah. I s- like I wanted to say like, yeah, I knew about that, but then, <laughs> then I thought about the date and I was like, that's crazy. They started in 1983. Who was hosting it? Was it still Lavar George Burton the whole oh, time? Man. Lavar Burton. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's some dedication right there. Which is great. Yeah, and then after it went off uh went off air, they um they developed an app that that did some stuff um my friend Jackie actually interviewed Lavar Burton for an article that went up at Ars Technica about it which is cool and then he came back a couple weeks ago with this kickstarter and he says you know we want to make a we want to make like a web and like smartphone portal now because we you know in in the 80s we came to tv because that's where kids were and now we want to come to where they are now huh well yeah because the number of times and on any given day i see like a toddler holding a smart device man like before their stupid little baby hands can even actually hold anything they have like their mom's smartphone that they're like tumbling around in their hands like Four to six hundred dollar pieces of glass and electronics. <laughs> what are you doing? I watched a baby fall over today because it didn't know how to sit up straight. <laughs> like, how are you giving that thing like the Steve's job? Steve Jobs mega device. Is that your version of like kids today? Is like they're getting so ruined by smartphones that they're not going to learn how to like sit up and walk around. No, this baby had nothing to do with a smart with a smartphone. Oh, it you're just saying just- that like babies can't be trusted to sit up so why can they be trusted with smartphones yeah this baby had food (laughs) on its chin it was letting its mom dress it like a crazy person and it didn't know how to sit up straight and it hit its head on a bench that it was sitting on like i would have to have like a separate smartphone for the baby so that it wouldn't ruin mine Oh man, or just no smartphones for the baby. I think. Yeah, leapfrogs only. If we ever have kids, 
it's it's gonna be like it's gonna be this war between me wanting the kid to like all the things I like and Susanna not wanting the kid to spend its life in front of the TV. <laughs> Are you gonna try and do that thing where you you give them the exact perhaps a rushed version of the tech curve that you experienced as a kid? <laughs> Like you're gonna I've thought start about them, doing that with video games. Yeah, start them on like an Atari, and rush them to the Nintendo, and and they're watching like CRTs. Start with, start with Nintendo. No, yeah. there's no reason to start with Atari. Dad, what's that? Can you put that great new show on? Yeah, I'll I'll put Family Ties back on for you. Don't you worry, <laughs> little guy. Um. So yeah, the Reading Rainbow thing. They had a. They had a goal of a million dollars and that you know they're going to produce new content they were going to have some apps they're going to have like a web portal and they were going to get materials into like 1500 classrooms i think for free oh cool and on the first day they made a million dollars <laughs> okay um and they still you know they they after that they announced a new stretch goal of like five million dollars which um we're we're actually recording this two weeks before. I tried earlier to pretend like we were talking about it two weeks from now, but that's well, let's, yeah. Let's drop the charade, Andrew. Yeah. Um, Andrew, <laughs> it's, it felt it, it. I wasn't able to get out of the voice that I used for charade. <laughs> I got stuck. Um. So now, now it's like May thirty first. Right now, there are still thirty one days to go on this Kickstarter. It's at three point one million dollars. Oh my good god so lavar burton like and they they recorded a really cute video to go with it and then after they hit a million on one day he recorded like this really like obviously heartfelt like tearful message about how like humbled he was so lavar yeah, burton course. seems like a cool guy like he can have as much of my money as he wants <laughs> <laughs> i mean okay might not say that to him he might take a lot more than you're able to give Somebody on somebody on the Toast, which is a site that I've become enamored of recently, wrote a post that said, "You know, whenever whatever Lavar needs, if Lavar wants to shoot <laughs> a shot-for-shot remake of 2004's National Treasure, he can have all of my money that he needs." <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read and the Lavar Burtons you've been meaning to fund. My name is Craig. <laughs> my name is Andrew, <laughs> but don't take my word for it. <laughs> Okay. What is your it's, name? It's Reading I'll, Rainbow. I'll yeah. go have to I'll have to go fact check your name, yeah. I guess. Um every well, week we read a book yeah. and tell you about it. Yep. That's the thing. That's the thing. That's what you signed up for when you pressed play on this podcast. <laughs> and you're bound to it. You're not allowed to press stop. It's yeah, no, it's a, it's a all-in-one go thing. So, um Craig, what did you read this week? Let's just uh, get right onto it. Yeah, let's get right into it. I read two stories by Dorothy Parker. Uh, I read Big Blonde, and here we are. Okay. Um. So Dorothy Parker, I didn't know a lot about her before you told me that we were going to be reading. Me neither. Yeah. So <laughs> she was born a uh, Dorothy Rothschild, um, in 1893, mm-hmm. um, in New Jersey, but her parents apparently rushed her to New York. Gotta they, get they out were, of that jersey. Gotta get yeah, out of that jersey. She was born in like their summer home, so they rushed her into the city, <laughs> so she wouldn't be a New Jersey, which I, I personally am kind of offended by. 
you you've adopted jersey so hard and like you you've said this before it's like your little brother like you don't want people picking on it no like i can make fun of it as much as i want but you shut your mouth (laughs) so uh and her mother died when she was five and her father remarried and she hated um, them yeah she hated them and apparently referred to her stepmother as the housekeeper oh that's awful (laughs) which i thought was was awful but also funny um, she became a writer pretty early on in her life. In 1914, she sold her first poem to Vanity Fair. And um, after spending some time at Vogue, she she became a full-time writer at Vanity Fair. She was a movie reviewer for a long time. Uh, not, well... Theater critic. She was a, yeah, she was a theater critic, I'm sorry, um, for a few years and she was popular at first, but then um, producers started getting upset with the things that she was saying, and so she was fired. Yeah, she was filling in for uh, P.G. Wodehouse is how she yeah. got her start. Um, um, so the I guess the one the the big thing in her life, aside from you know all of her literary success and stuff, <laughs> was that she was a founding member of the Algonquin Roundtable. Yes. Which was this like informal gathering of of writers um that happened for about ten years, I wanna say, between like nineteen twenty and nineteen thirty. Yeah, I love how the Algonquin group got together. So there's this guy, uh John Peter Tui, who's I think like a theater agent in addition to writing. He's a publicist. Um and his buddy Alex Wolcott uh had kind of not been as favorable to some of his clients as uh peter tui would have liked so he staged this like luncheon at the algonquin to welcome wolcott back from world war one and it was supposed to be this like oh alex is back hooray everyone welcome and he spent the entire lunch just making fun of alexander wolcott and like (laughs) just insulting him in front of everyone and what happened was that everyone had such a good time <laughs> that they just said, "You know what? We're just gonna, we're just gonna do this every day. We're, we're just gonna, gonna come have to lunch." A, a witty persons club. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite uh, tidbits about that is a couple years in when they were they got moved from room to room as they kind of became more infamous. Uh, they were being called the vicious circle because you basically right, went yeah. you went there to insult people and get insulted. Um, they had a waiter named Luigi at one point. He was like assigned <laughs> to be their waiter. And they started they started calling them like they were the board and they were having board meetings. Mm-hmm. They started calling themselves the Luigi board. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I think is pretty Which is pretty, pretty great. funny. Um I will say, I will confess. That I only know one other name on the like founding list of uh, people in the Algonquin Roundtable. Yeah, I don't know that many of them either. Um, I recognize and by George... that many, I don't mean. I mean, I know <laughs> none of them. I don't want to put on airs. <laughs> Sorry. I recognize George Kaufman, um, who I feel like I should be able to tell you what he wrote. He was a playwright. Um, I'm looking that up right now because I feel really dumb for not knowing what he wrote. Um, so you he, just built a short pier and then you took a long walk off of it. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, this uh, was totally avoidable. <laughs> oh, he uh, he 
directed the original Guys and Dolls. He wrote You Can't Take It With You, which is what won him the Pulitzer Prize. Okay, that's why I recognize okay. him. Um, Harpo Marx was in it for a while. Uh, yep. Estelle Winwood was in it for a while. That's a name I know. Um, uh, George S. Kaufman's wife, Beatrice Kaufman. Kaufman? Kaufman? <laughs> I'm good at talking. Yeah, we're great at it. Yeah, um, so that went on for a couple of years. I mean, one of the other people at that table was the guy who was the editor of the New Yorker, Harold Ross, uh, who gave Dorothy Parker a huge boost to her career. Mm-hmm. Um, he founded the New Yorker and, and gave her a lot of writing for that, as well as her writing in Vanity Fair and other magazines of the time. Because <clears throat> she was publishing poetry in concert with uh, publishing all sorts of short stories and and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that she ended up saying about the Algonquin later in her life, she kind of it it broke up, and you know, uh, we said it's one Harpo of those Marx, things that just faded away. I guess yeah, kind of just faded away. And and Harpo Marx, you said had had been there, but he kind of admitted that it took a really strong stomach, figuratively figuratively speaking, to be part of that table because you kind of had to bring your thick skin and and be ready to be made fun of and that wasn't for everyone and and also people kind of were getting upset that you would come up with wisecracks and then you would like store them up for lunch like you would like oh that's a funny thing i could say to steve let me remember <laughs> that um i don't who doesn't do that though <laughs> Who doesn't make up jokes that like next time I see this person, I'm going to tell such a joke and I'm going to drop it like I just thought of it and they're going to think I'm hilarious. The only time that I've ever done that, it blew up in my face and I I was was coming up with an aristocrat's joke to tell Chris that involved Gallagher because I know he hates Gallagher and that. Okay. Hey, who doesn't? You know, and it didn't, it it wasn't funny to anyone. He's a super racist dude with one joke. Like, what do you... Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't able to turn him into a big joke. It was, I should have been, I should have known better. That's too bad. Um, But what Dorothy Parker said later in her life at the round table, quote, these were no giants. Think who was writing in those days. Lardner, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, and Hemingway. Those were the real giants. The round table was just a lot of people telling jokes and telling each other how good they were. Just a bunch of loudmouths showing off, saving their gags for days, waiting for a chance to spring them. There was no truth in anything they said. It was the terrible day of the wisecrack, so there didn't have to be any truth. <laughs> and what you remarked to me off air uh, before we started recording that it sounded like Dorothy Parker would have been really good at Twitter, yes. which she probably <laughs> would have been, but later in her life, I'm sure she would have been dismayed that that's all people were using Twitter for. <laughs> yeah was wisecracks yeah because um, she became um like a civil liberties and civil rights activist a little later in her life and it looks like a lot of people thought she was a communist but yeah I can't like was she a communist i don't know if she was she was part of an anti-fascist league and an anti-nazi league sure um which kind of go hand sound, in that hand. That all sounds very like that sounds like something the American government would be fine with. But yeah, well, and she was involved. You know, she was involved in Hollywood. She was nominated twice for an Academy Award. And if you're a leftist in Hollywood in that time, you get called in front of the House of American Activities Committee, whether or not you are a communist. You know, yeah. that just happens. They, you know, they put together a thousand-page dossier on her because yeah. why not? And she got put on. She got put on the blacklist. Yep, the old yep, blacklist. Yep. Refused to name names, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
So I don't know that she was, but does that matter? I don't. Yeah, the the government thought that she was, which doesn't necessarily mean anything. No, yeah. they were they were looking for him, and you'll find him if you go looking for him. That's just how that works. Yeah, and she was she was married a couple times. Um, first to um Edwin Pond Parker the second. Mm-hmm. Um, who she joked that she married to escape her Jewish name. Yep, <laughs> I can I can understand why, or why she even might make that wise crack. Um, yeah, because people didn't people didn't like Jewish people back then. I guess. Nope. Um, she got pregnant once that we know of, but um, had an abortion, mm-hmm. which um, made her depressed, and she attempted suicide after that unsuccessfully. Um, and in 1934, she married Alan Campbell, but that kind of disintegrated after a while. And um, Campbell committed suicide in ni- 1963, and then she died in 67 of a heart attack. She was 73. So that's that's her personal arc, I guess. And we're going to yeah. talk a little bit more about her you know, her lasting legacy now. So Craig, what, which stories did you read of hers again? I read big blonde and here we are, which are two of the ones that I was kind of like, I need to read something that of hers that was at least popular or, or renowned. And big blonde is, um, is the one she won the O Henry short story award for. Do you want to start with that one? Yeah, let's start with that one. All right. Hit me. What's big blonde. It is about a big blonde. (laughs) Okay. Like big in what way? Uh, she was a large, fair woman of the type that incites some men when they use the word blonde to click their tongues and wag their heads roguishly. Okay. Uh, that's straight from the story. Um, I figured it was not something that you were just saying. I was just riffing. Just, (laughs) I've read enough Dorothy Parker that I can just spit yang in her voice. Yeah. Yeah, Like you, you say roguishly pretty much all the time. Yeah. That's one of my favorite words. Um, she had been employed as a model in a wholesale dress establishment. It was still the day of the big woman, and she was then prettily colored and erect and high-breasted. So I don't think that we're talking about, you know, like overweight, but definitely pre-skinny uh, flapper days, right? Yes. Okay. Um, we're, this won the award in 1929, so she's writing probably about people in the early 1920s. Um. Men liked her, and she took it for granted that the liking of many men was a desirable thing. (laughs) Popularity seemed to to be worth all the work that had to be put into its achievement. Men liked you because you were fun, and when they liked you, they took you out, and there you were. So, and successfully, she was fun. She was a good sport. Men liked a good sport. Uh, I wanted to read that whole passage because that not only sets up how uh, this woman, Hazel, gets into the situation she gets into, but it also is the primary conflict of the story, is that she kind of gets hooked up with a, a number of men over the course of the story, and they all really love the fact that she's a good sport. Okay. Um, she's fun, or at least she puts on the guise of being fun, being pleasant, um, laughing at people's jokes, and the all her relationships go sour when she either has real feelings or kind of gets sad about something and then they dump her. Um, okay. So first uh she wants to get married so she gets married to this guy named uh Herbie Morse who likes her and 
that's a good name. Yeah, it's a pretty good name. Um, so he uh, starts objecting to her crabbing, as he calls it. <laughs> which is when she's upset about something. And I assume it's not her going out in her boat and like fishing for <laughs> I crabs. I really hate it when you put on those high waiter <laughs> boots. Um, and uh, they fight more and more. And so he starts leaving. Uh, like he won't come home after work. Like he'll just go out and get drunk. And she starts drinking as well. And while he's out, she starts uh, hanging out with her friend Mrs. Martin across the hall and uh, eventually Herbie ends up leaving her because she's gotten so distant and is kind of hanging out with these other people and has started drinking and and is no longer fun to be around. She's no longer a good sport Mm -hmm. as it were. Um, So Herbie leaves her. And she ends up, he says, what does he say when he leaves? He says, they have a drink together and he makes a toast. Here's mud in your eyes. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then he leaves. Uh, so then she goes and she tells Ed, this guy that she's met through the poker games, um, that Herbie left her. And she becomes Ed's mistress. Uh, and one of the, he, Ed like gives her an allowance. So she, at this point, she doesn't have a job. She got married. She doesn't have her dress model job anymore um she's about 30 early 30s right now and uh he gets her a new apartment after her lease ends and this is i really like this uh a colored maid came in every day to clean and to make coffee for her she was quote through with that housekeeping stuff she said (laughs) and ed 20 years married to a passionately domestic woman admired this romantic uselessness and felt doubly a man of the world into betting it. <laughs> All right. She is, I, Dorothy Parker is well-renowned for being able to turn a phrase and sure. uh, her reputation is, is well-earned. So does Big Blonde have a name? Did I miss this? Oh, it's Hazel. Sorry. Hazel, all right. Yeah. So here comes another guy who likes her for this one specific thing or like likes this image of her and... I bet it. I bet they ride off into the sunset and they never have any problems. Uh, no. Ed okay. rides off to Florida, <laughs> uh, and leaves her with some money, um, and she becomes uh, mistress of a couple other men. One guy named Charles gets like a paragraph. That's it. He's okay. Just like that's it. He just gets a paragraph. She meets Sydney, who is described as a little, brightly dressed, clever Jew. I think you have to take a little bit of the of the turn of phrase with with a grain of a hundred years ago. Okay. Um, and he even says, "What does he say? He loves how uh, gay and lively she is when she's drunk." Once I had a gal, he said, used to th- try and throw herself out of the window every time she got a can on. Jesus, he's he added feelingly. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then Sydney, this guy, he went and married some other woman uh, and then there was Billy and then this is where this is where the story kind of loses track of who she's with it goes no after Sydney came Ferd then Billy in her haze she never recalled how many men entered her life and left it um, and when she hears about Herbie uh, settling down in Chicago she took the news with mild interest as one hearing of the sex peccadilloes of somebody whose name is after a moment's groping familiar <laughs> so she's even kind of lost any sort of investment in these men as they 
come through her life. Yeah. Uh, she ends up, the last guy that she kind of ends up with is this guy named Art, uh, who considers her the best sport in the world. <laughs> okay, we're back uh, to square one. Yep. The The line is, she was convincingly gay with him, though the effort shook her. The best sport in the world, he would murmur his uh, deep in her neck. The best sport in the world. Man. Oh, man. Uh, so then things go things go bad with Art, and she's feeling less and less inclined to her day-to-day of any kind. You know, she's mm-hmm. going to this restaurant called Jimmy's, where there are people there that she met through uh, Ed. And she'll talk to them and kind of be interested and kind of not. Uh, and someone, they're talking about whether or not they can, like, sleep anymore. And one woman is like, well, I man, thank God for whiskey. I, I couldn't sleep if I wasn't loaded up on whiskey. <laughs> uh, and this other woman says, well, I take uh, a little bit of, what is it called, Veronal? Takes, uh, if I didn't take Veronal, that, that stuff makes you sleep like a fool. All right. Uh, so I can see this going in a bad direction. Yeah, and it takes from, that turn from here. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, Hazel decides that she has to get herself to New Jersey so that she can buy enough uh, Veronal to kill herself. You okay? Going to New Jersey to buy stuff to kill yourself? I think that's <laughs> something a lot of us can relate to. <laughs> uh, so she goes to Jersey, gets two vials of it, and. Ends up taking them both. Um, and what is the... I want to read read this. Uh, oh, she has one last section um, with Art where she's really upset. And this is a, this is a great way to greet your, your ostensible girlfriend when she's crying or, or upset. Mm-hmm. Uh, she almost get, gets run over in the street by a horse and it kind of freaks her out. And he goes, what's the matter with you for God's sake? <laughs> And she goes, I saw a horse. I, I, A person feels sorry for horses. I, it isn't just horses. Everything's kind of terrible, isn't it? I can't help getting sunk. And he goes, ah, sunk me I. What's the idea of all the belly aching? What have you got to be sunk about? She goes, I can't help it. He says, ah, help it me I. Pull yourself together. Man, Come on and so sit down and take that face off you. Real sympathetic fella. Yeah. So that's the night that she ends up trying to kill kill herself. He goes, for God's sake, try and cheer up by Thursday, will you? And then uh, he leaves and she downs the two bottles of Aranol. And then her maid, uh, Nettie, comes in and finds her, uh, brings in a doctor, and he is able to take her to the hospital and and pump her stomach. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it ends with her kind of dismaying at the fact that she's still alive and having a drink with Nettie. And Nettie's like, what does Nettie say to her? It's, she says, you got to cheer up. That's what you got to do. Everybody's got their troubles. And then her and Nettie share a drink. And she says, thanks, Nettie. Here's mud in your eye. <laughs> That's like the second to last thing that Nettie says to her is, you cheer up now, Miss Morris. You cheer up now. So this is just a catalog of insensitivity. Yeah, like... but... The interesting thing is that the way that the story gets set up, there is there is both sympathy and criticism for the situation that Hazel's in, right? All right, so tell me how that works. <clears throat> well, none of these men are good to her. Right, of course. So that's kind of, that's a take for granted. It, it's not, I don't want to uh, belittle it by saying you take that for granted, because I think at the, at the time this was pretty 
controversial, you know, or at least you're airing some dirty laundry when you're writing this in 1929. Sure. Right? Saying that there were women in the city who, who lived this way and that and that it might drive them to kill themselves. That's pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. But I think the value system that gets laid out even in the first, like, two pages where uh, she believes that her only value is uh, an aesthetic one and that she starts pretending to be a certain person in front of people and then she can never find people she can actually be herself with. Um, so I think Parker, at least in the in the initial part of the story, sets up that Hazel is not to blame for this life that she's leading, but it certainly appears to be the only option for her. If that also, makes sense. I mean, of course, some of that might be her own doing and some of that might be like societal i'm not i'm not sure how much of a i'm not sure how much of like a feministic reading we should be doing on this one because just because of the time period and i'm not sure like if that's the intent yeah is to like convey that women have to put up with all these men and they don't they don't care about her and they dump her as soon as she as soon as this image of her falls apart and it's only through her relationships with men that we even really learn anything about her you know like yeah it's and i i i think well you are you trying to say that dorothy is not or dorothy parker is not letting hazel off scot-free or that she is no, I'm not letting Hazel off scot free, but I'm not sure how like how much is Dorothy Parker trying to comment on how women are treated more broadly in society, I guess. I think she I think she is or at least in her own experience, right? She's not writing about people in the Midwest. Yeah, right. Um it's it's a pretty urbane existence. Um I think that is one of the things that I was kind of learning about Dorothy Parker as I was getting ready for this up ep- for this episode is that there seems to be there's a there's a passionate fan base of hers that is that has been arguing for a long time that she was a lot more uh we should be giving her more credit to to sum it up briefly sure um because you think like I keep going back to the to the awakening which was episodes ago um which was set what was that 1880 1890 mhm uh, so this is 40 years after that, and you know, this is like 30 years pre-Mad Men, if you want to put it in. <laughs> you want to put it in its like pop culture slash historical context? Yeah, with vis-a-vis uh, the role of where women wa- are and were in American society. You sure, know? yeah. Um, and I think what I was reading about Dorothy Parker is people kind of enjoy her her sniping at people who recreationally drink too much and yada 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 which was definitely part of the crowd she ran in um but i think she's this is also pro coming out of prohibition era so there's this sense that people were going to seek it out anyway um and why what was driving them to seek it out and what was happening to them because of the systems they were in i don't know i think it's a mix of a lot of stuff yeah, I'm I'm getting getting far afield. I don't know. Yeah, um 
I, I know you have a whole nother story to talk about, so I don't want to get too far out in the weeds, but it sounds like a story that, that is humorous on a lot of levels, but the big on a big broad level it's kind of depressing <laughs> yeah it's i guess the the individual characters get kind of like one-liners either about them or something that is very humorous and is kind of easily digestible in a literary magazine right but then i think what happens with this story in particular is it's a little more biting it's a little little more truer it's a little truer than just a little more truer. That's terrible. Yeah, good. Uh, a little truer than, oh, here's some clever things to say about people. Right. Yeah. One of the turns of phrase I really liked, she was, it's later in her, uh, in the story, she hasn't gotten to the point where she is thinking about killing herself yet. And, uh, but whiskey is not having its desired effect anymore. Over the course of the story, she kind of turns to liquor more and more to kind of just, make everything hazy and harder to think about. Mm-hmm. And uh, at this point, she was beginning to feel towards alcohol a little puzzled distrust as toward an old friend who has refused a simple favor. Whiskey could still soothe her for most of the time, but there were sudden inexplicable moments when the cloud fell treacherously away from her and she was sawed by the sorrow and bewilderment and nuisance of all living. Okay. I, I, yeah, that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> yeah, and I particularly like that analogy as toward an old friend who has refused a simple favor. Mm-hmm. Like that is like a really insightful nugget of human behavior. Like I just want to get drunk. I've been getting drunk for a long time. Why can't you do this for me? Why can't you just let me be drunk? <laughs> Whiskey? Why can't you do that for me? <laughs> just, I just need to borrow your car to like pick my sister up at the airport whiskey what's the deal <laughs> so i don't okay, know so that's that's big blonde let's hit the next one because i don't want the episode to run too terribly long so yeah uh the other one is here we are which is actually a nice breath of fresh air coming out of big blonde which <laughs> uh you know gets a little gets a little dark um here we are is it's a young couple on a train after their wedding, on their wedding day, mm-hmm. and they're headed into New York. They're going to go stay at a fancy hotel, and it starts with like a brief kind of description of them and how everything that the wife is wearing is new, like it's stiff, and that her shoe still has like the price tag on it, which I think is kind of great. <laughs> Uh, and that the husband's kind of a doofus and, and takes like eight minutes to get all the luggage like stowed away. Um, so you get the sense that they are, uh, they're not experts at what they're doing. Right. Right. Um, and it very quickly becomes, it's all a conversation. Almost the entire story is, uh, just dialogue. Whereas Big Blonde felt it was a lot more, um, description of action rather than dialogue. So it was kind mm-hmm. of interesting to read them back to back. Uh, and they just start, you know, they're they're sitting there on the train and they're like, oh, well, we're married now. How's about that? <laughs> and they're, uh, she starts, <laughs> this is what she says, and this is kind of where the whole conversation goes awry. She goes, I, I don't know how people do it every day. 
get married. When you think of all the people all over the world getting married just as if it was nothing. Chinese people and everybody, just as if it wasn't anything. And Chinese then, people and everybody. And then he says, well, let's not worry about people all over the world. Let's don't think about a lot of Chinese. We've got something better to think about. I mean, what do we, what do we care about them? And so they start talking about the wedding and, and how great it's going to be now that they're married. And she starts talking about how beautiful the bridesmaids were, including their friend Louise. And he's like, oh, yeah, she was really beautiful. Well, what do you think happens, Andrew? Um, Probably some kind of infidelity or something. No, she just gets mad that he thought Louise looked pretty and oh, said all right. so. <laughs> and then she starts trying to I say, jumped the gun there. I, went, I took it too many steps. She starts saying, well, didn't my sister Ellie look great? And he's like, yeah, I think she looked fine. And she goes, well, that's... You, you don't like my sister. We're never going to have her over at the apartment because you don't like her. This, this is, is like the stereotypical, like, uh, don't don't answer the question if she asks you if, if jeans make her butt look big. Like, oh, women be crazy. Yeah, that's kind of what this whole story is, is that okay. married people be crazy. Um, is it married people be crazy or is it women be crazy? Because no. so far all I've heard is women be crazy. Uh, he gets He gets a little off track a little bit um but i do i do think that she does more of the transgressing of the conversation so and it makes me feel better that a woman wrote this story yeah yeah (laughs) um she has this new hat and she's like i guess i will take this darned hat off Uh, and she says put it up on the rack and he she asks him if he likes it and he goes looks good on you and she's like, well, do you really like it? And he goes, well, I'll tell you. I know it's the new style and everything, and it's probably great. I don't know anything about things like that. I like the kind of a hat like that blue hat you had. Gee, I like that hat. <laughs> and she goes, well, that's nice. That's lovely. The first thing you say to me as soon as you get me off on a train away from my family and everything is that you don't like my hat. The first thing you say to your wife is you think she has a terrible taste in hats. That's nice, isn't it? <laughs> Man, that's he didn't say that, but okay. And so then... They start getting a fu- getting in a fight about like expensive hats versus cheap hats, and she's like, "Well, I I bet you'd like it if I wore those cheap hats, those three ninety five hats, not these twenty two dollar hats." And he's like, "Why don't you go?" She says to him, "Why don't you go run off with Louise? She'd she'd wear all your cheap hats for you." And he <laughs> he's like, "Well, why don't you marry Joe Brooks? He'd give you all the twenty two dollar hats you want." <laughs> And they just start fighting about hats for like three pages. Oh my goodness. How long does this go on for? Uh, like the whole story this is the of story. just people fighting. This is the story. Um, they talk about Louise. And then it, it kind of bo- kind of bubbles up over over going hashing like, oh, well, it's the whole thing about the married people and it's Louise and why did you say that? And he's like, well, I didn't know it was going to make you upset. And... She says, we used to squabble a lot when we were going together and then engaged and everything, but I thought everything would be so different as soon as we were <laughs> married. Now I feel so sort of strange. I feel so sort of alone. Um, and they kind of talk about how they don't understand why things aren't immediately different and how they're going to deal with that. Uh, and he's, he makes some jerky comments about she needs feels like she needs to write some letters when they get to the hotel, and he's like, "Well, should I get you a magazine or a bag of peanuts so you're not bored with me?" <laughs> uh, and they they talk about how they're gonna you know go see a movie or something, maybe not tonight when they're in their hotel, but later. And this is one of my favorite lines in the story. 
She says, well, I don't suppose they'd get there any quicker if I wrote them tomorrow. There was a silence with things going on in it. That's just, <laughs> it's not even, that's a literal thing that Dorothy Parker put in the story. And then the next thing that happens is he says, and we won't fight anymore ever, will we? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, is this, is this going to be like a Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf thing where it starts as a humorous story about a married couple sniping at each other and ends with people threatening to murder each other? No, it just continues sniping because then after that silence where they agree never to fight anymore, uh, they kind of rehash some of the things that made them upset. And she brings up the hat again and he goes, uh, I never said any such thing. You're crazy. And she goes, all right, I may be crazy. Thank you very much. But that's what you said. Not that it matters. But it makes you feel pretty funny. You think you've gone and married somebody that says you have perfectly terrible taste in hats and then goes and says you're crazy beside. <laughs> <laughs> Man, uh, and sounds then, tiring. Yeah. And then they, they say, well, look at us. We're on our honeymoon. Pretty soon we'll be regular old married people. In a few minutes we'll be getting into New York. We'll be going to the hotel. Look at us. Here we are. We're married. And she says, yes, here we are, aren't we? And then the story's over. That's it. It's just people jabbering at each other. It's, it's just really... people who don't... I guess I almost sympathize with that point of view where like, okay, we're married now. What's different? Because I felt like that when we got engaged and we're going to get married in October and like... It felt weird that it didn't feel different. Yeah, that that's, makes sense. That's the most insightful thing I think about the story, other than being. I found it very entertaining. I think it's yeah. A really I mean, it sounds story. like it was entertaining. Um, but you know, to to hear it is as <laughs> exasperating as it would be to hear that particular argument. Uh, it's just I think she does a really good job of kind of having them naturally bring back up the things that make each other annoyed. But I think that's very insightful that those kind of fights happen and that every time they happen, you're like, why, why does this keep happening to us? What, weren't we supposed to be past this? Wasn't this supposed to be different? Um, I think that's what is kind of next level about the story. It's why, why it would be enduring a little bit. And if I like the spareness of it, I like that we don't really learn much more about these people. I don't even think their names get said in the story. It kind of feels like a tiny little play, which is neat. Um, but yeah, I, I imagine if you were on the cusp of being married and you read the story, it might kind of <laughs> hit a <laughs> little close to, to home. A, you might have to go have a talk about <laughs> it after. Like. <laughs> you might just need to both read it and be like, hey. We're not like this, right? <laughs> and Or if we are, then that's okay. Because everyone is. Is it know. okay, though? Is everyone like that? I don't think everyone's oh, like God, that. Oh, God, I hope not. Oh, no. This is just people now. This is just relationships. Thanks, Dorothy Parker. You ruined so, relationships. <laughs> so, Dorothy Parker, in like one or two sentences, what did you like? What do you think of her? She's a wisecracking dame with something to say. Okay. How about that? That's pretty good. And she'd probably come go, up that with, could go on the book jacket. Yeah, she'd probably come up with something nasty to say about me and then like <laughs> but make me laugh at the same time she said it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point. Um I think she, you know, she turns a good phrase, which is her one of her claims to fame. Uh I haven't read any of her poetry, so I, I can't speak to how that skill gets used in in that genre, 
of writing. Um, I bet pretty well. That would be my guess. I'm actually really excited. You can't buy these stories separately. I ended up buying the complete uh, stories collected. And one of the things that's in the back of the book that I want to go back and and read, because it won't take much time at all, actually, is uh, there are a bunch of character sketches that are kind of put together. Because I don't think that she's she's not writing these stories that are like plot driven, right? Um, Big Blonde has a plot, but it's far less. It's a couple discrete events. Yeah, it's like it's there, but it's not driving anything. No, it's mostly it boils down to the encounters of each men at each man and, and how they build to her attempted suicide. Sure. Um, which in the, in the book, the doc, in the story, the doctor even says to her, like, I could, I could have her arrested for this, <laughs> like <laughs> attempted suicide. She could have been, you know, locked up for trying to do that. Mm-hmm. And it just goes to, goes to kind of show, I think that, that part is in there to, to talk about how taboo that was. Um, I can't remember the name of the story offhand, but there's one where she talks about abortion that she uh, doesn't mention the word, but it's very clear what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like there's a Hemingway short story that I really like called Hills Like White Elephants that does the same thing. Um, which in that time was kind of you don't talk about that stuff. Yeah, uh, you had to you had you had to be super veiled about it, and, I, and that seems to me what she's trying to do she she's amusing herself and her readers while also sneaking in some more uncomfortable truths mm-hmm. via humor yeah um given the right era she could have just as easily been a stand-up comic i'm sure <laughs> you know she's the Janine garofalo of the like don't night. don't give janine garofalo that much credit okay i um, won't do that but i also thought it was interesting that here we are was published in cosmopolitan magazine what (laughs) right next to 50 like pantaloons that you can wear for your man or what i don't what do people wear here's a sexy flagpole dance you could do 40 new dances to do to the that hip new gershwin tune what are you sure make your man roar with these 20 roaring 20s sex tips that's it (laughs) pulling the pulling the plug on this uh before we get out of here i want to share a listener email that we got in um we don't get them too often so it's exciting when we do uh this is suzanne uh, i'll just say suzanne uh suzanne (laughs) wrote in and she says, hi, guys, I'm new to your podcast, so I'm sure someone else has already pointed this out. But the garlic thing was not Bram Stoker's invention. All right. Uh, this is episodes ago. When did, we, when did you read Dracula? Dracula Dracula was like a few months ago. So the, we, this is a really, really old time that we were wrong. Yeah. Uh, and no one has corrected us. So, Suzanne, thank you. She says, vampires had existed in myth for centuries, and one of the defenses people had was garlic. There's an old book called Vampires, Burial, and Death that we might want to read if we wanted to learn about that. She said, just please, no sparkly vampires. All right. Um, I think that's a a reader request that we can fulfill. Yeah. Uh, This week and every week. (laughs) Which, and to confirm what she was talking about, it led me to a website called (laughs) garliccentral.com. Which talks talks about how garlic may have evolved as uh, a ward against vampirism 
because it's a natural mosquito repellent. <laughs> uh, I guess mosquitoes don't like garlic. And vampirism was kind of seen as, as a similar type of practice. Sure. So there's like a natural correlation there. Uh, but one of my favorite things from garliccentral.com is the disclaimer, this is not a medical site and does not offer personal advice. I'm not a doctor, biochemist, nutritionist, or dietitian. Just an ordinary guy who loves garlic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, So if you need to learn about the stinking rose, as garlic is otherwise called, uh, you can head on over to garlic-central.com. And thanks, Suzanne. Not only for correcting us when we need correcting, but for inadvertently exposing me to my new favorite website. Uh, if you want right. to send us to other vegetable-themed websites, you can uh, tweet them at Twitter. No, twitter.com slash overdue pod. Oh, geez. Uh, you, or send them to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash overdue pod. Or email them to us like Suzanne What's- did. What's the email address? OverduePod at gmail.com. That's pretty good. Uh, we also have a website at OverduePodcast.com where we have uh, Amazon links to the books that we have read and the books that we are going to read. If you click on those and buy the books, that gives us a little bit of money for hosting. And some people have actually been doing that lately, which is really awesome. So thanks. Um, on our website, we also have links to our RSS feed and our iTunes page, which you, both of which you can use to subscribe to the show. If you uh, if you subscribe in iTunes, please be sure to rate and review us. If you have time, it only takes a second. Um, right now, as of as of this talking, <laughs> we we've got fourteen ratings. Um, Thirteen are five star and one four star. So we're gonna find you, buddy. Yep, we're gonna find you. We're, we're gonna, gonna come re- at you. Gonna, I'm gonna turn you upside down and shake you till that extra star falls out of your pants pockets. <laughs> Whoa, we are getting we're getting a little aggressive on this show. I think we need to. Tone. I got I got real mad at Nebraska a couple weeks back. We gotta be careful. We're our own. We've got to be our own biggest advocates. I think. Okay. We've got to advocate for ourselves. Okay. Okay. I'll do that. <laughs> um. What What else is there? Anything else on the web page or anything that no. I didn't mention? I don't think so. Okay, you can listen cool. to old episodes if you want. That's cool. We like that. Yeah, we have like 60-something of them, so that's that's good. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to be reading next week because, like I said earlier, we are recording this a little bit ahead of time. We've got a lot of travel coming up this month. But um, if you want to send us recommendations for things that you would like to hear on the show, we do really appreciate that. And um, I will try to get a book up on the website. Um, as soon as I can, just so you guys know what's coming down the pike. Um, In the meantime, everybody, thank you for listening and try to be happy.